Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The Ford government is putting $10 million to identify residential school burial sites. The UK is slowing its reopening. What can we learn? And the major general that headed Canada's vaccine rollout is taking us to court for being fired. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. You look bigger today. You got platform shoes on. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Great news, Ontario. Our COVID-19 case count has dropped below 300. The fewest cases since September. Get your jab in the flab. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Uh, it is, uh, you should see what happens just in the five or six seconds after he finishes saying what he says. Uh, all of a sudden, the headphones get thrown down. He gets out the door. The door gets slammed. He's like out of here in like three seconds flat. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the combo. All right. Uh, a news conference this morning from the premier and, and staff, uh, in regard to, uh, residential schools. Of course, yesterday we talked about uh, the discovery uh, of uh, yet another, this one in Brandon, Manitoba. Uh, just over 100 students is believed to have uh, remains below that site of the former residential school in Brandon uh, as that investigation uh, continues. At that point, uh, Premier Doug Ford this morning announced that uh, the province will be giving, uh, and there's always you know, been arguments over jurisdiction and whose jurisdiction this is. I mean, there's a court case right now that the federal government's fighting on over jurisdiction and such. Um, but $10 million from the province over three years uh, to put towards the investigation of these uh, Ontario residential schools and moving forward whatever uh, way the community sees fit. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Patricia Doyle Bedwell, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University and is with us now. Patricia, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Uh, yesterday we were just discussing how uh, another uh, another site needs to be investigated in Brandon, Manitoba. Yeah. Over a hundred remains found there. It's pretty obvious uh, once we got to the Kamloops discovery and confirmation that this investigation needs to go further into all of these sites, uh, which apparently could very well have uh, no reason to believe there aren't more out there. Let's put it that way. This is yeah. just the tip of the Especially, iceberg. Especially, well, Justice Sinclair said... Um, you know, there could be up to 25,000 kids that died during the residential school era. So this is the time to look. And uh, even though it was in the Truth and Reconciliation Report that there were, he fa- they found about 5,000, 4 to 5,000, 4 or 5,000 kids, um, there needs to be an investigation. And uh, this could be criminal activity. We don't know. Uh, the Ontario government announcing today $10 million to go towards this uh, investigation. Your thoughts on that, and uh, where does this go from here? Uh, obviously, the communities uh, need to be leading this charge. Uh, your thoughts yeah. on where we are today? Well, I am happy um, that um, Premier Ford has uh, put forward $10 million over three years to do this investigation. I mean, there were over 18, there were 18 residential schools in Ontario. So they need to be doing this investigation because we're going to find, I'm sure, more. And as um, was noted by Justice Sinclair and uh, who was the chair of the, T- the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they were prevented really from doing the, uh, in the forensic investigation on this issue. So it is up to the government, the federal government has put forward some funds, from my understanding, and it's got to be investigated. And I'm glad that Premier Ford has given $10 million over three years. But when you think about it, it's not a lot of money when you're talking about experts and forensic experts, DNA experts um, that are going to have to be employed to, to not only uh, find the technology to find these bodies, but also to identify them and bring them home. And that's important. Um, I know that community members are saying here, 
in Nova Scotia that um, just starting this investigation is the first step. And we have to bring these kids home and we have to find out what happened to them. So this is a good first step. And I, um, it's going to be a pretty extensive process when you think about it, um, looking at all the different schools, finding if there's any remains, exhuming those remains, identifying those remains, trying to figure out cause of death if possible at this point, um, DNA to connect them to the families and the communities that they need to be brought home to. So $10 million is um, may only be a drop in the bucket um, at this point, but the federal government has a significant responsibility here as well, as does the Christian churches that were involved in these schools. And uh, I think that the churches need to also contribute money to getting this investigating and, and bringing these kids home. Uh, many have uh, used the, the jurisdictional issue as a way mm-hmm. of, of solving any of these. You know, the, the federal government's in court right now fighting jurisdictional issues. Are you surprised that this is coming from a province? Well, yes, at some level, I'm surprised because technically the schools were organized by the federal government and funded by the federal government. Education is a federal responsibility for Indigenous peoples under the Indian Act, and uh, the churches were, of course, involved as well. So the province didn't really have a lot to do with these schools. So the fact that Premier Ford has contributed to this investigation I think needs to be applauded. I think that uh, the jurisdiction issue, in my mind, sometimes try people try to hide behind that because it's it's like, well, it's not really our problem, and it was really a federal government problem, which is true. It was a fe- it is a federal government problem. It is a church problem, but it's also a Canadian problem, and we need to have all partners involved in investigating this because these were um, there's many people, at least in my area of uh, Canada who see these dead children, um, that they died because of crimes against humanity, because of cultural and, and genocide, cultural genocide and genocide. And the federal government certainly has a significant responsibility, but the provinces, because the schools were located in various provinces across Canada, I think they have a responsibility as well. And there's no guarantee, and I just want to say, this is, there's no guarantee that all the children who may have died um, were actually buried in the school. There, um, there was a situation I knew of a few years ago where uh, a researcher found records of um, Indigenous kids buried away from the reserve, and they were unidentified, and she found a record for me and sent it to me. So I see that this is an Indian boy who was 10 years old, who was buried in Dartmouth, um, unidentified, but the only uh, thing that was said on the record that they died of a disease, and then um, they were from Shubenagadi. So there may have been kids that were buried away from the school. So I think that's why the provinces need to also get involved, because this might be an investigation that becomes much bigger than just the residential schools. And uh, we need to know what happened to these lost children. So jurisdiction, I always think it's about responsibility. And I know that sometimes people like to avoid that responsibility by arguing jurisdiction. But like I said, this is a Canadian issue. And all the governments, provincial, territorial, and federal government need to be involved as well as all the churches. And they need to contribute funds so that our kids can come home. Uh, also at the uh, news conference this morning was Chief Mark Hill of Six Nations. Yes. Uh, let's play a clip of what he had to say this sure. morning. Thanks. Imagine your home life with your children. You raise them in your family, in your community, in your language, and with your culture and tradition and values. In the day-to-day life of family, your children learn what it means to be who they are, and they learn their identity and where they come from. But one day, officials representing the government show up at your front door and take your children away from you. They're put in a faraway institution, like example, what we're standing in front of today, where there is much misery, neglect, and abuse. You will not see them for a very long time, if ever again. 
some of your children die, and some you don't even know what happened. Their bodies are not brought back to you, but instead they are buried in unmarked graves and you never again know what happened. This was the experience of all too many Indigenous families and all of our communities remember. Uh, that is Chief Mark Hill, uh, Six Nations, uh, in front of the Mohawk Institute. Uh, Patricia Doyle Bedwell is with us, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie uh, University. Uh, Patricia, you were talking about what needs to happen now, moving forward. Uh, now that uh, you know we've seen what's happened in in Kamloops, we've got confirmation yeah. of that. Now, obviously, this investigation needs to be done throughout all of these sites. Um, but obviously, the community has to be leading this. Has to be. Yeah. Uh, a, a part of this leading it and and so will there be situations where um you know we talked about what happens next do do do, do bodies need to be exhumed does everybody yeah. need to be identified does a cause of death yeah. need to be found or will there be situations where the community may not want that how, how do you move forward with this well i think that um most of the people that i've talked to at least in um across the country different groups they want their kids brought home and the process of that is to exhume the remains identify them um, whether it's through dna um, that's probably the only way they could do it now um, finding the cause of death determining if they were crimes committed they need to we need to know that and every community um, has to work within themselves and how they want this to happen so how so if, um, you know, and people think of it as, you know, as the chief said, you know, like we lost our kids. They were taken away from us. There's many people that don't even know what happened to them. Right. And they want to know what happened to them. So but every community has to determine a way forward for their tribal nation. So how do they want to approach this? And I know the Mi'kmaq people have said, like, we're going to start investigating in uh, Shubenagadi. We're going to um, work, partner with um, St. Mary's University and their forensic anthropology um, department to look for um, the remains of these kids. Now, I haven't heard of anybody saying that they didn't want to know what had happened, that they didn't want to... um, Mm exhume these bodies or remains and they didn't want to know what happened to them most people i've talked to they want to find out and uh they want to know what crimes were committed against these kids because you know kids were um like died for many different reasons it could have been suicide it could have been illness it could have been uh neglect it could have been you know i'm thinking about um Gore Downey in the secret path, you know, um, with yeah. Cheney Wenjack, who died running away from the school. So his body was not even at the school. They found him, you know, so we'd have to look at who ran away, who, what happened, who, um, all this, I'm trying to say is that all of these issues have to be brought forward. And the only way forward is to go forward. And, that begins with the federal government and provincial government making those commitments to support us in terms of the money. If the community wants to move forward, then the funds and the resources should be there. The federal government and the Catholic Church and other Christian churches ran those schools. They have a responsibility, and they need to be held accountable for what happened. And if the only way that they can be held accountable is to exhume these remains and determine cause of death and what happened, then that's what we have to do. Now, like I said, every community may be different and they may not want to pursue, they have to decide how they want to pursue this. This is just my opinion. Like I, mm-hmm. I think we need to find out what happened and the way forward um, is for the government and the Catholic church, particularly in the Kamloops situation to take responsibility and not just express sad, oh, this is a tragic situation. No, they have to say, we were, we are willing to stand up, we're willing to be accountable for what happened, and we're willing to give the money to support the investigation, even though it may end up that some of the people that were in, the, some of the staff and the 
priests and the nuns in the residential school will need to face criminal charges if they're still alive, or the church has to be responsible, because this is something that, um, you know, if you think what Justice Sinclair said, it could be up to 25,000 kids across Canada, you know, and I know that Ontario has 18 schools, um, Nova Scotia has one, but there's no guarantee either that those bodies, if there's kids that died, they may not be buried at the school. So it needs to be a bigger investigation. Like, start with the school, work with the communities, follow their lead and what they want to do, and support the communities with resources to do this investigation. And then the bigger picture, the federal government has to start implementing the truth and reconciliation calls to action. But we can't have reconciliation if we don't have truth. So the truth has to be discovered. It has to be found out. And uh, then at that point, once all the cards are on the table, then we can start a process of reconciliation if that's what communities want to do. Like, that's important. The communities have the control here. They have to determine what they want and how they're going to proceed. And then the governments should fund them and support them in that process. Patricia Doyle Bedwell with us, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University, uh, talking about the Ontario government uh, contributing $10 million to identify residential school burial sites over the next three years. Patricia, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Here is today's daily commentary. It seems whenever possible, some will go out of their way to slam the provincial government for their vaccine rollout all while giving kudos to the Prime Minister, who was late to even bring vaccine into the country and left the provinces to deal with a shortage of vaccine supply and increasing variants of concern. When I do press back with some facts, they will quickly recalibrate their answers, saying there's enough blame to go around. Well, considering Canada did not even start mass vaccinating Canadians until after May vaccine shipments arrived, I think the provinces have done a pretty good job of getting the jabs into arms. It's not the provincial leaders that brought a third wave. It was the lack of vaccine arrival in a timely fashion until about six weeks ago. And the same can be said for the new variants. The longer you wait to vaccinate, the harder it becomes to get ahead of it. In the last six weeks, Ontario has administered more vaccine than any province and, as with most, has about 74% of its population vaccinated with dose one. That's quite an accomplishment in just six weeks for a province as diverse as Ontario. So kudos to you, despite the critics. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's borders with Manitoba and Quebec have been closed to non-essential travel since April as a way to control the third wave of the pandemic. Vehicles were turned away at police checkpoints unless the people in them had a valid reason for crossing like work, medical care or to transport goods. But the number of COVID-19 cases continues to drop and as of 12.01 tomorrow morning, the restrictions are being lifted. That means people will be able to travel freely between those provinces again. There will be no 14-day quarantine period required for people entering Ontario from other provinces and for Ontario heading to Quebec, they'll be allowed to enjoy some more freedoms like dining in a restaurant again. Sandy Salerno, Global News. All right, let's talk uh, about COVID-19, where we are, and variants of concern, and specifically the United Kingdom, who, uh, you know, we all look to way back when, who were opening up uh, earlier or earlier than we certainly were, the same with the United States. They're now uh, experiencing issues with uh, other variants, new variants, or variants of concern. And uh, many times we can look to what is going on around the world, since we're behind everyone else, to simply see what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on your show again. So, you know, we've certainly talked about the UK and the US, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, few months, as uh, they slowly started to open up ahead of us. And for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, things uh, back to normal or close to normal for them. Uh, I understand in June 21st, they were supposed to move to another phase of their reopening. And now the UK talking about or they are delaying that up to a month. What are your thoughts uh, and what's going on in the UK, Thomas? Yeah, def- definitely they're seeing this uh, Delta variant really 
taking off and uh, and you know what they're indicating is that the cases are doubling nearly every week in in various spots so so they're really uh, you know experiencing a lot of concern there now and you know I think part of it is associated with uh, the vaccine that they were using so the the AstraZeneca vaccine was the primary one they were using and the evidence from from the UK is that it it isn't as effective as the as the Pfizer vaccine in regard to the uh, dealing with this uh, delta variant so so even though they, they you know have uh, a large proportion of the population uh, vaccinated the because the vaccine isn't as effective for that one uh, it you know they're, they're at you know they've got this high proportion of the population at risk risk now. So, so you know from our perspective, uh, you know uh, we're I think we're in a in a better place because of the the, the range of different vaccines that we we have been uh, implementing here. Uh, a lot in Canada have been jabbed with the AZ, especially with the first shot, um, and and we know obviously the situation with that in Canada. So, how concerned are you with the variants, uh, considering so many Canadians have had the AZ? Yeah, I, th- I think with the you know with Can- in Canada, a lot of lot of people who had the first dose of uh, AZ are looking at uh, having a second dose with either the Pfizer or, or Moderna. And I think that will provide uh, you know, better protection. But, but overall, you know, what, what, what I'd say is that because our case numbers are, are really you know, quite down now in comparison to what, where they were, and, and we're also seeing that the Delta variant isn't, seems to be as spreading as quickly as we thought it would, uh, I think that combination uh, means that we're, we're probably in a much better place than what what the UK uh, has been, and so so I think uh, with the with the AZ vaccine, uh, if you've had the two doses, then you know you you still are uh, at you know good protection from the you know severe outcomes of uh, from the Delta variant, such, such as hospitalisation, but you. But you still might, you know, have, suffer some of the, uh, the 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 lower lower grade effects. But but overall, you know, I'd say that we're we're in a in a much better position. We certainly know uh, how Canada's uh, uh, per capita vaccination rate is high because obviously we we didn't we didn't hold back the second dose. We just started to get as many jabs in as we could. Uh, now we're you know Ontario, I think we're well over seventy percent of adults have you know at least their their first dose um with the uk was there more hesitancy there they again like the u.s started off like gangbusters but are they continuing to vaccinate at a high rate yeah 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 de- definitely you know with with a you know a two two dose regime it is it is you know often easy to get uh you know a relatively high proportion of the population uh vaccinated with one dose but then getting people back and, and with the second dose can be be a lot harder and and that's what you know what we you know the evidence from from the UK is showing is that that uh, you really need the, the two doses to to have the, the best protection uh, by from all the variants and particularly from the delta this this new delta variant so so I think you know that that's a sort of a an indication for us that we we really need to keep pushing forward in uh, trying to roll out the, the second doses as quickly as possible. So is this a sign that maybe the UK was opening a little too early? Well, well, definitely with, with uh, you know, reopening and, and what, I, you know, what I'm seeing, you know, in my own neighbourhood is that uh, people people are really sort of ditching the masks pretty quickly so that the, the number of people wearing masks has really dropped off in comparison. And, and so, you know, even though I, you know, I understand that, I think... People should uh, be really still uh, implementing, you know, social distancing and mask wearing as much as possible, even if they, even if they do have the the, the, uh, the two two doses. Uh, but you know, seeing there's a still a large proportion that only have the single dose, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, people are sort of hoping that or, or feeling that the uh, you know the vac- vaccination is 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 doing the trick. So so why should I wear my mask? But right. I think. You know what we need to get out there is that uh, social distancing and mask wearing are still really important at, at this stage, uh, and and if we want to keep driving the numbers down, we, we it's a combination of vaccination plus plus 
the other measures that, that's going to do it. Is the UK doing more to bring more Pfizer and Moderna in, considering where AZ is with the variants? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I, I'm, I can't really comment, but uh, I know that they have been very focused on on using the AZ, and so, so you know, might you know, I think you know, uh, looking at other options is is probably a good good thing if if they haven't already done it. Do you think we'll start to see the same sort of outbreak in the United States? Many have have asked, uh, you know, uh, even though they got way ahead of us and, and vaccinated uh, their population certainly a lot faster, uh, now they've become a little bit more lax. Hesitancy has uh, has obviously kicked in, and we've talked about this before, Tom. But, you know, especially considering, you know, I remember watching the Blue Jays home opener or the Texas home opener with the Blue Jays, and it was packed, and that was months ago, and everybody was kind of waiting for something to happen, and it, and it never really did. How come we haven't seen as much of this uh in the united states as we have say the uk yeah it it it, it is really interesting you know i think uh, the the u.s you know to their credit were able you know to get in uh particularly this you know starting this year and really really ramp up the uh the vaccinations but but as you said the you know the getting the second doses for for a lot of people uh has been uh, you know, is more difficult. But but one of the things that the US did was that you know they they did rely on the the the, uh, the one dose, the, the single dose one, the, the Johnson and Johnson one. So so you had uh, you know a good proportion of the population that were you know fully vaccinated uh, already. And so so you know it, it is it is difficult to sort of say what's going on because you know with the with these variants of concern, they can really you know. Uh, Target or, or what are you know spreading in particular locations and, and particular ge- geographic areas, and so so my sense is that that uh, there's going to be uh, you know specific areas where where we're going to see you know much higher rates than, than in other areas, and and, and, that, and I think that's what you know at the moment they're they're say in Ontario they're looking at targeting the you know uh, or trying to increase the vaccination rates in those. What, what they're calling the hotspot. So, so I think that you know that's what we're probably likely to continue to see is you know sort of you know different parts of the country having uh, different uh, rates, and, and I think we're seeing that with you know Alberta and other other provinces uh, with with the numbers of cases and, and uh, variants, of, particularly the Delta variant. So. Uh, you can certainly see now, Tom, the rate at which Canada will be vaccinating or is vaccinating. We're seeing times between the first and second doses be shortened. Uh, more and more vaccine coming in. Uh, this is going to be a big month for Moderna, I understand, coming into uh, to Canada. I mean, uh, we can see where we're going to be by uh, July, August, September. Do you feel comfortable in combating these variants? Uh, I definitely this, this, you know, getting as many people as possible uh, having the second dose is, is, you know, a really important strategy. You know, the the other, you know, as I said, the the pre, you know the prevention measures such as mask wearing and and uh, hand washing and social distancing are still important at a local level, but it does uh, highlight the the issue that uh, that it is a global pandemic, and you know what happens in other countries impacts us, and so. You know, you know, we're likely to see more sort of variants of concern start to take take hold in other countries, and and particularly countries where they're they're not uh, at you know at the same level we're at in regard to control, and uh, you know that's always going to be a concern, and so so it means that uh, you know borders, you know, international borders, and uh, travel across international borders are still going to be of of uh, of an issue for for quite a period of time to come. Uh, it appears, and we certainly know the issues that Alberta has had over the, over this pandemic. Uh, we're now seeing variants, and apparently they have per capita the most at this point uh, in Alberta, and actually infected in a an infection in a hospital. And some of those have been vaccinated. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, again, it's a one of those things where we're you know as as we're moving forward, we, we're learning more and more about. Uh, you know the the infectivity of of the uh, different variants, and and you know, and I think you know people sort of have to remember that 
that even if they are vaccinated, that it, it doesn't you know it doesn't mean that that they're they're totally that, that they can't become infected or can't infect other people. It's, it's just it's protecting themselves against the signs and symptoms of of the uh, of the uh, of COVID, and so so it really means that you know the the vaccination is is that you know is, is will allow people to to not get as sick but it doesn't may not necessarily help control the spread as as much as 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 people would think whereas the controlling the spread is is really the the uh, these other protection measures as well so but but then again the 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 evidence is still coming in on 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 uh, you know how how uh, much someone who's uh, Who's double vaccinated, as in fully vaccinated, is able to spread uh, spread the uh, these new variants of concern. So, so we're still learning, but but it, but definitely, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that people who are vaccinated will still be able to spread, you know, to some to some extent. Uh, we're already hearing chatter of a third dose. Um, is it that time? And I mean, when you think about how long we've been in this, and if you're getting vaccinations as in for the flu on an annual basis, is it time to start thinking about how we're going to schedule a third shot in the next year? Yeah, I agree that, you know, people have to be prepared for, for you know, follow-up or booster doses at some point. The, the issue is, uh, you know, whether or not we'll need them based on on how effective the vaccines are against whatever the these variants of concern are at the time. I think at this stage, the the evidence, particularly coming out of the UK, is showing that the the, the vaccines are, are you know pretty protected, pretty give, offering good protection, particularly you know for people who are fully vaccinated. So so my sense is that they they won't you know given the current range of uh, uh, variants of concern, they probably won't be looking at uh, you know a booster up. But but if there's if there's one that comes in that is you know hugely more uh, infective and uh, and is more easily transmitted and, and isn't and the vaccines aren't as effective, then then I think you know they'll they'll be looking at uh, looking at a third a third dose at some point. Uh, we're hearing, uh, obviously, the relaxing of uh, restrictions between provinces, uh, provincial borders, and such. Uh, the U.S.-Canada border extension till June 21st. They're already talking that that will be uh, extended. We're still a while from the U.S.-Canada border opening, aren't we? Yeah, like like I think that with the the border opening, that there, there can be you know the potential for you know a graduated level of restrictions based on on circumstances, but obviously that can get a bit more difficult to to implement. You know, so so I, you know, one one of the approaches could be, you know, depending on where someone comes from and what their vaccination status is, they might have a, you know, they might have to meet certain rules. And and people who maybe aren't as vaccinated and coming from potential hotspots have to meet, you know, more severe restrictions. So so I think, you know, the full opening of the border is probably you know, quite a way away, but but some level of of graduated restrictions based on on uh, sort of circumstances might might be uh, something to to look at uh, to try and at least uh, open up some some level of uh, travel across the border. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Tom, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. Really appreciate your time and uh, have a great day. All right, let's move on and uh, and uh, move to another topic other than COVID nineteen. Although there is there is six degrees of separation here. Uh, you might remember uh, Major General Danny Fortan. He was the uh, the head honcho when it came to the federal rollout of vaccine, and uh, and he was doing so and in in a, a good job as far as we know until about May, and then there was a- allegations brought against him of sexual misconduct dating back to the eighties, and he was removed. So now he is asking for a judicial review of the decision to remove him as head of Canada's vaccine uh, logistics, alleging political interference by the prime minister and two of his cabinet ministers. Lawyers for Fortan have filed an application on Monday with the federal court seeking an expedited judicial review 
of last month's decision to fire him from uh, his posting with the Public Health Agency of Canada and not to reassign him. So uh, obviously he's not happy with what happened. Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute and is with us now. Christian, thank for this, uh, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So your thoughts on Major General Danny Fortin uh, filing this court challenge? So this will be super interesting to watch because technically from colonel upwards, you're considered management. And so as management, you serve at pleasure. So you serve at pleasure of the crown. Uh, and so that means the crown doesn't need a reason to dismiss you. Uh, the crown can simply say that your services are no longer required. So that's sort of one of the, uh, you know, you get paid more. So you can look at this as risk pay. But in return, the crown can also opt to dismiss you. What he's arguing here is that he he was not afforded the procedural fairness um, in terms of that dismissal. And so I think one of the key tests will be is whether procedural fairness applies uh, to a ranking general in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so I'm not sure whether there is precedent uh, in that regard. So, in effect, legally, there could be no case here because there is no sort of employment contract per se. Well, so there's an employment contract, but there is an understanding by both sides that um, there's a quid pro quo for getting promoted. Um, and that means understanding that when you're a senior rank in a very high visible organization with uh, that is also exposed to considerable public and media scrutiny, there may be reasons where the government, rightly or wrongly, may need you to fall on your sword uh, for the organization and mm-hmm. where the prime minister simply decides um, that uh, uh, that this is a time for you to move on. So um, I think this will be an interesting case to watch. I think what he's obviously trying to do here is salvaging his reputation because, uh, um, I mean, we'll have to see how the offenses play out, but... Uh, uh, chances are that uh, even the 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 gravity of the offense notwithstanding given that that the offense lies 35 years back if you look at comparable offenses uh, of the type since he have not doesn't have a record of reoffending since if he shows up before the court in Quebec and says that he's genuinely sorry and uh, he was a teenager and did a silly thing at the time. Um, chances are that the court is not going to impose um, is, is probably going to impose a suspended sentence or uh, or or broadly dismiss the case. So I don't want to prejudge the outcome here, uh, but likely the lawyer's sort of position is that uh, that he has the 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 offense to which um, uh, this particular case refers um, dates so far back um, um, and would not be considered a, uh, uh, a, a very serious offense, uh, likely under the justice system uh, to begin with, uh, if comparable take cases are into account, so that the, the, the punishment does not fit the offense, and so that um, at a, um, at, at, at a, at a, that, that he feels that he should have been afforded a... Um, uh, opportunity to weigh in on the evidence ag- against him that, in effect, I mean, what he said, government uh, judged me guilty and dismissed me before I even uh, had my day in court and before we even know uh, whether and to what extent the justice system, um, uh, the, the gravity of the offense that the justice system would judge the circumstances. And I mean, any listener who uh, finds himself in that same situation can probably empathize um, with the matter. At the same time, at the time, he, as a cadet at CMR Saint-Jean, so the Royal Military College at, uh, at Saint-Jean, he'd been a civil servant um, by virtue of being a cadet. He would have been subject to um, the Code of Service Discipline and to regular military law. Um, and, uh, the, um, and I think so if his position is that uh, the offense to time would may have not constituted an offense under military law or the code of service discipline. It would have constituted an offense uh, under uh, under uh, under it, it would have been it would have a, been a um, an offense, and so that uh, the government uh, had a legal obligation to let the 
um, provincial case against him uh, play out uh, and uh, before it uh, passed a substantive judgment on his qualification to continue to serve. Uh, matter, uh, for example, the date of the offense or even what the offense uh, it, it was, not to diminish it in any way, but if you are under this sort of agreement, if you are per se, as you said, uh, during the military, does any of this even count in the sense that, you know, when we ask you to fall on the sword, you fall on the sword and you move on. It, it doesn't matter what the offense is. Yeah, I think this is sort of what the crux of it comes down to. And obviously, he feels he has a reasonable case here against um, a a possibly comparable case that I think you and I have talked about before um, uh, of a completely different type of offense, but is the case of Mark Norman, uh, where the government had also suspended and prejudged the outcome of that case. And Mark Norman in that case was completely exonerated, of course, uh, of any wrongdoing. And so while uh, this is without prejudice to the Fortin case, uh, the government does have, in particular this government, uh, does have precedent of coming down very hard on senior ranking military members who they feel um, put the government's and its reputation uh, at political risk. If if the if he is exonerated, is he own, uh, owed anything at that time? So, uh, look, I mean, the senior generals all have uh, reasonably comfortable pensions uh, that they can collect earlier than most Canadians. Um, I mean, this is sort of par for the course. It's part of serving in the in the armed forces. Um, and it's one way that we recognize the uh, the service that uh, individuals render to this country. Um, so I, I suspect this is, you know, he, he may in the end, um, if, he, if should he end up succeeding with his procedural fairness case, it looks like his aim here is not to go after damages. His aim is to um, is to salvage his reputation um, and that he's going after the reputational damage. Uh, that he has suffered. And my guess is it is also he feels an opportunity as a bit of a test case, because um, you might imagine that some of the people who are currently in senior ranks and have been uh, suspended or risk dismissal, um, if their cases turn out to be, um, if, if they too end up being exonerated, uh, that this is a bit of a canary in the cold mine in terms of, in coal mine, in terms of the extent of of the obligation the government has, on the one hand, to afford uh, everybody procedural fairness, given that in Canada we presume, under our rule of law system, you, you're presumed innocent until proven, proven guilty, um, and also to establish a precedent for the government's obligation uh, to reinstate individuals where the the investigation subsequently um, comes up um, uh, comes up uh, exonerating someone or uh, finding them perhaps uh, guilty of an offense under the uh, code of service discipline, but an offense that would, under the code of service discipline, not constitute um, uh, essentially dismissal with cause. Uh, how can the prime? Uh, how will the prime minister's office be processing that, or or even the defense minister? What's happening here now with this court challenge? Oh, they want this story to go away so badly. I am mm. sure. Um, the uh, this is and and look look. I mean, it's we saw this in the last couple of days in terms of the Mike Rulo case. So you know, there were people who served together for years and who know each other well personally you know, either as friends or because they're concerned for someone else's well-being and mental health, uh, go out and have a have a private golf game. And um, it becomes so toxic uh, that the members in that game face uh, face dismissal or in one case have opted to dismiss. Um, to, to This is the second in command, st- and you're referring to the second in command stepping down after golfing with Vance, correct? Right, but the key here is if you listen to the Prime Minister's statement uh, at the NATO summit on this particular issue, uh, the Prime Minister basically se- is sending a very clear signal to all members of the armed forces that the interests of the institution come before the interests of the individual. And so the message here is from the Prime Minister that if you are serving a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, 
uh, you will have to forego probably associating with anybody who is currently under investigation until such time as the organization has run its course. Um, and it's it's a little bit ironic that uh, a government that for uh, so many years seems to have uh, sort of sat on this file and not acted on this file. I think the pendulum has has now swung, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, completely over to the other side uh, to basically do anything and everything to protect the institution, because, of course, the government would rather not fight, I suspect, a fall election on its handling of the cases of potential professional uh, and or sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so I think this is a very strategic move to um, make sure that they don't have, uh, they minimize the amount of subsequent bad news that comes out of the department. And so the PMO, I'm sure, will be unhappy about this type of case because this case is going to make news probably for many months because every time it comes up in court and there's a hearing on this, uh, it's very likely that Newspedia are going to report on it. And so it's going to be a reminder. Um, and of course, it's also a risky proposition for the government because if he feels that he wasn't afforded procedural fairness and he wins this case, um, that's also a high risk proposition for uh, uh, for the government in terms of uh, the the political risk here. So don't underestimate both the institutional issues in the Canadian Armed Forces and this particular case uh, pose significant continue to pose significant political risk to the government. What's the mood of the military in the military right now, considering they're in the headlines for all the wrong reasons? So I think there is um, there there was a sense for many years that it was only a matter of time before the reckoning is going to come. Um, there are some cases here that are surprises to members in the armed forces. There are some cases here that do not come as a surprise to members of the armed forces. Um, and so I think... Um, um, especially if you're a woman in the Canadian Armed Forces. I mean, as you heard before testimony um, in, in front of the Standing Committee for the Status of Women, um, that many women um, have a story to tell, and the statistics bear that out, um, of, uh, of, of some form of uh, misconduct to which they have, been disco- they have been exposed in the course of their career. At the same time, I think there's a sense of many sort of serving members that, of course, there are many, many people, men and women, the vast majority of whom serve with integrity. Um, and so I think they want to see um, the individuals that the noblesse oblige, I think, rooted out and sorted out, because I think what we have here is a bit of an attitude among some senior members that once you reach a certain rank, and that's why the Fortin case is different from some of the other cases that are being being investigated, because some of the other offenses took place while people held a senior rank, whereas in this case, um, that offense sort of long predates uh, any sort of significant promotion. And so I think there's a sense that um, uh, in some of the other cases, this noblesse oblige attitude, you get promoted to a very senior rank, and that sort of means that uh, rules are for other people. Um, we saw this during the Somali inquiry, um, and we see it now again. And I think this this is frustrating to the entire uh, uniformed uh, membership of the Canadian Armed Forces. And so I think there is also some relief that um, there are clearer lines being drawn in terms of the expectations of conduct uh, of uh, uh, of, of individuals who are promoted to one of these 72 um, uh, flag officers positions in the Canadian Armed Forces. Are you surprised the defense minister is still there, that he sort of stayed under the radar through all of this and, and has managed to keep his job? Um, not really. He's um, with, within the party, uh, maybe not necessarily in cabinet, but within the party, uh, he is a, a very strong performer and also a very strong local performer in Vancouver. Um, in the broader context also, ministers, um, I mean, ministers don't usually resign or, or are removed unless there is um, personal misconduct involved. So, 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 so direct personal um, uh, wrongdoing on the part of the minister, which is relatively rare. Um, what I would say is that what we see is a broader pattern of a decline of ministerial responsibility. Our constitutional Westminster system of government is based 
the fundamental constitutional principles, responsible government. So the government of the day is being held responsible by the opposition uh, to the will of the people. And the integral part of responsible government is ministerial responsibility. So that ministers are responsible for their departments and agencies, not just in terms of what transpires in those departments, but also providing appropriate direction to those departments in terms of what the government wants them to do, especially when it comes to um, bedeviling challenges such as institutional culture in the Canadian Armed Forces. And I, I would say over the last 20 years or so, we've we've seen a significant decline in ministerial responsibility. And you can see this uh, in particular from this government, where multiple ministers, you know, look at Minister Haidu, for instance, uh, testifying before a committee on the Public Health Agency of Canada. Um, it's uh, It seems to be uh, many other people's faults, but it doesn't seem to be the minister's um, the, mm. the minister doesn't take responsibility and the government doesn't take responsibility to the contrary. They look to uh, to deflect. Uh, and I think this is a... Um, we've seen this pattern before, but we've also seen ministers um, uh, think of David Colonnett and subsequently, um, uh, for instance, during the Somali inquiry, who uh, very much exercised ministerial responsibility in terms of providing very clear direction to the armed forces on how to remedy mm. it. Uh, the, 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 the challenge that the armed forces ran into and setting out very clear expectations by the political authority. And in a democracy, I mean, in terms of civil-military relations, it is ultimately up to the elected uh, to, to the elected politicians and to the government of the day to set the clear direction for the Canadian armed forces. And I think in many ways, the institution is still waiting for that direction. And there's some frustration that we are having more studies in the hopes of what appears to be uh, a buying time um, rather than following through on recommendations that have been on the books mm. for years, including for this government, that the government has opted um, for any number of reasons not to act on. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you for the detailed conversation. Very helpful. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.